Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. The politics of natural resources have affected African countries since before independence. Good governance and mismanagement of resources often determine the quality of welfare of the populations of African countries or any countries. Resources have also been blamed for war and other forms of conflict across the continent. One is left to wonder whether or not that is true. Depending on the type of resources, the spectrum is quite wide. So are the types of political leadership that have shaped that space. Whether one speaks of Nigeria with its oil, Morocco with its phosphate, the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, with its cobalt and copper, or Botswana with its gold, one has to contend with good governance and management of resources. In other quarters, folk even wonder whether there is such a thing as resource curse. I happen to disagree, but then that's part of our discussion today. Joining me today on Into Africa to help discuss these issues and sort them out is Dr. Zainab Usman, a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. Her fields of expertise include institutions, economic policy, energy policy, and emerging economies in Africa. Previously, Zainab was a public sector specialist at the World Bank, where she worked on the governance and institutions of natural resources management, energy sector reforms, service delivery, as well as South-South economic relations. Zainab has worked on policy reforms and social sustainability in Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, Papua New Guinea, the Republic of Congo, Serbia, Tanzania, and Uzbekistan. She is the co-author of the book, The Future of Work in Africa, Harnessing the Potential of Digital Technologies for All. She also contributed to the World Bank's flagship report on rethinking power sector reforms in developing countries. Her book, Economic Diversification in Nigeria, The Politics of Building a Post-Oil Economy, was published by Zed Bloomsbury Press in June 2022, just last month. Good afternoon, Zainab, and welcome to Into Africa. Good afternoon, Vemba. Very, very nice to be here and to join you. It's a pleasure to have you, and I would like to start by congratulating you on your book, Economic Diversification in Nigeria, The Politics of Building a Post-Oil Economy. That's heavy stuff there. I think before we delve really into all this stuff, I really want to congratulate you. And if you can tell us a little more about what did you find in this uh, research of yours, what was the big surprises, the big takeaway, and what do we learn from it? Yeah, well, thanks a lot. Uh, I have to say, um, it's just really a relief to have the book out after working on it for so long. It's based on a decade plus worth of my own research on Nigeria, but also more broadly on oil and resource-rich countries around the world. 
So this really is a product of that. And I just feel a huge sense of relief to have it out there. In terms of the main findings, I would say it's probably one key thing. I think one key message that I'm trying to communicate. And the message itself is based on other papers I've published, but the work of other scholars, which is that we look at resource-rich countries, we look at oil-producing countries in particular, and they attract a lot of attention because these are countries which, for all intents and purposes, are wealthy, they have the resources, they receive a tremendous volume of oil revenues, but a lot of them still struggle. In many ways, they struggle economically, they struggle socially. And for that reason, they tend to be placed in a specific category as countries that are afflicted by a resource curse, by an oil curse. And when I started the research itself, I started on that basis. Okay, how do we address this oil curse? How do we address this curse of natural resources? But as my research progressed, I realized that I needed to unlearn all of those things because the challenge is actually not one of a curse of a natural resource, which is really an inanimate object. Why are we giving it agency? The challenge is much deeper. It has to do with politics. It has to do with history. It has to do with institutions. So really the central message is that the central development challenge that these countries face is one of diversifying their economies. They're diversifying their economies away from dependence on oil, but in some cases also dependence on other things or other structural attributes of their economies, such as informality. In the case of a lot of African countries, you find that they're heavily dependent on informal agriculture as a major source of their GDP, but as a major source of employment for the vast majority of people. So it's really around economic diversification. That is their major challenge. The challenge is not of addressing a resource curse. So that really is the central message, I would say. And, you know, this is not just intellectual or academic debate. It actually has real policy implications. How we frame a challenge affects how we think about solutions. And a lot of policy solutions that have been put forward over the past two to three decades, I would say, from around the late 80s to the 90s, and especially in the 2000s, addressing this resource curse containing the oil industry and the oil sector to prevent this instability from spilling over, revenue management. These policies are good, but they are not good enough. They've not gone far enough. And that's why these countries are still facing the challenge of economic diversification today. So that really is the message and the fact that politics plays such an important role in the policy choices that have created and exacerbated this challenge of achieving economic diversification. That's very interesting. I hear resource curse, I hear informality, I hear diversification itself, but I hear also the politics of it. So can you talk a little more about the politics of it? Because that's what we would like kind of to lay as the foundation of our discussion today. How do the politics of country X or Y then shape this space that you just talked about? Yeah, so I don't know if there's a uniform way of talking about politics across the whole world, right? You know, there are certain things that are common or similar. There are certain patterns or trends that we can identify, but then there are certain other things, other elements that are very context specific, I would say, right? When we talk about politics within the context of resource rich countries, we are talking about domestic politics or domestic factors. We are talking about transnational factors. And then we're also talking about 
factors that occur across time and space. And let me explain this a bit more. Starting with domestic politics, for every country, we have to look at its history, its social composition. So history in terms of how that country came into being. And a lot of developing countries, you find that, you know, there might be the influence of colonialism. There might be some other interesting historical dynamics like that. Then the social composition of that country, how ethnically homogenous a country is or heterogeneous regional disparities, for example. And many countries have that in Africa, in, you know, in Nigeria, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and even beyond Nigeria, some of the Gulf Arab countries, they might be ethnically homogenous, but there are certain social dynamics there at play. And then the strength and the quality of institutions, private sector development, technological advancement, these are all factors that shape domestic politics. And then with respect to transnational factors that shape politics, of course, the history, but then very importantly, the dynamics of global commodities markets. We have multinational corporations. We have the dynamics of cartels like OPEC, where the demand for oil, for resources comes from, how that demand could be disrupted. And we've seen that happen very recently with the Ukraine war, with the Ukraine crisis. And then the location of countries in all of this, whether they are price takers, a country like Nigeria, a country like Angola, their production of oil is quite significant, but it doesn't really fundamentally shape or affect oil prices if a significant volume of their daily oil production gets taken offline. And that tends to happen a lot with Nigeria. That does not really affect global prices, whereas a country like Saudi Arabia or the US, or even Russia, which are major oil producers, when anything happens to their oil production, that affects the global prices. And then, of course, the final aspect of this is um, the temporal and spatial factors, you know, what happens across time and across space. And you find a lot of variation between or among different types of oil producers, the Arab monarchies in the Gulf, some of the African countries, we've mentioned Nigeria, Angola, Algeria countries like Norway. So there isn't a lot of uniformity and all of this, and I haven't addressed your question directly, but I thought to contextualize it, that probably isn't one uniform way of just talking about the politics of a country, right? Now that makes sense. Patterns and trends and some of the things I've identified, but there probably isn't a, a uniform way of going deep into the politics of a country. No, that's, that's fascinating. And also interesting because your own career and your research spans a wide spectrum. You've worked in Cote d'Ivoire, Papua New Guinea, Nigeria, but then also Republic of Congo, Serbia, Uzbekistan. So I think you have that spectrum to draw from. But I think as much as everything you've said is true in terms of the time, space, history of the country, but I think there is also commonality. One commonality that I think is worth fleshing out is leadership and vision, because those are now something as different as they are similar, right? So is there room for vision and leadership in that space that you've just delved into? How do leadership, particularly political leadership, and that vision, how do they make a difference? How do they matter? So I, I get to that a bit more in the book, and that's where I talk about how politics shapes policy choices that have caused or that have exacerbated this challenge of economic diversification. And in a sense, it's that 
framework or that thinking that perhaps could be used or applied in different countries and in different contexts, but then with the need to dig a bit deeper into every specific case. So let me elaborate a bit more. So basically, in every country, I think just to simplify this, whether a kind of consensus exists about how to manage the oil sector and the oil revenues, but also beyond that, how to transition that economy away from that resource, away from oil or you know whatever other resource it is, whether it's copper, etc. And then very, very importantly, figuring out a way to insulate that decision that is made about managing that sector and achieving that transformation and that diversification beyond that sector. So insulating those decisions from political competition. I think that is the key crux because being able to achieve that economic diversification is not something that happens within a year or within two or within three years. It can take years or even decades. So there needs to be a way to insulate those decisions that are made about that sector and about that diversification from the daily dynamics of political competition. In a lot of countries, there isn't that space, like a long-term horizon for policymaking. So you tend to have a lot of disruption. And it's across the board, whether it's Nigeria or Saudi Arabia, whether it's a democratic country or a less democratic country, the countries that have done this well, whether it's Chile, whether it's Malaysia, they have been able to have some kind of stability in policymaking, not stability okay. in politics, but stability in policymaking. Okay. I think that is the key. So in that sense, though, I still think it cuts both ways, right? So the insulation you're talking about is important because then the technocrat, the technical part of it, of setting the dynamics, setting the objective of diversification, need to be insulated from the daily whims of the political scene, so to speak populism and other things. But at the same time, that vision, that need to support that diversification and the technocracy that goes with it, need to have the backing of the political world through policymaking. Will that be what you're saying? So yes, that vision is absolutely crucial. But what is also interesting is, uh, and this is part of what I argue and part of what other people are arguing, including scholars like Mushtaq Khan and others, is that vision actually comes from the politicians themselves. A realization that unless drastic steps are taken to achieve this economic transformation, their own very survival is at stake, right? So then this task, this quest of diversifying the economy, transforming the economy becomes a national project, becomes a political project that is very much tied to their own survival. And that's what we've seen historically happen in a number of countries around the world. That is the key. The vision itself has to emanate from the political class, but it can only emanate when they realize that their very survival is dependent on transforming the economy. In that sense, it's a win-win. Of course, politicians are all about winning and winning <laughs> and winning some. <laughs> so speaking of that... Early on, you mentioned uh, the dynamics of global economy, which are also the dynamics of global politics, because they're not always the same, right? Uh, they go together often. So we've seen this come to a head with the war in Ukraine, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. 
And that, I think, kind of pushes itself into the intersections of the many issues that you mentioned. Europe is reeling for all the pressure that they're getting from Russia, especially with natural gas. People are talking, you know, President Biden is scheduled, I think, to go to Saudi Arabia to see what can be done with OPEC countries and how they can increase their production. But there are also issues. There have been debates where people say maybe this is the time for African countries to increase their production and also play a certain role in this. People are looking even into natural gas in places like Senegal and Mauritania, which have not figured on the front pages of this debate, but now it's up there front and center. Equatorial Guinea, Angola, and, and the usual suspect. But there's also Mozambique coming on, on the stage with its natural gas. Is there room for African countries, all producing countries and other resource producing countries to make a difference in this space? Early on, you talked about price takers and price setters. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? What's your sense of this? What opportunities are there for Africans? It's a very interesting time. It's interesting because on one hand, what we're experiencing now with the war in Ukraine and the disruption to energy markets globally is quite unprecedented because it's coming alongside you know, other things that are going on. There's the trade war between the US and China. We have this global inflation. Almost every country or many countries are really trying to manage that. But also very importantly, the whole world is still trying to recover from COVID-19, which, by the way, it hasn't gone away. It's still there, but somehow we've all decided to move on. So our economies, our systems, our societies are trying to recover from all of those. So it's quite unprecedented. We have a confluence of all these dynamics. But on the other hand, we have seen this before with respect to the sharp increase in global commodities prices. This is maybe the third or fourth commodity super cycle, as it's called. We've had perhaps the second commodity super cycle in the 1970s after the major oil producers in, in the Arab world, in Latin America, in Asia, nationalized their oil industries and came together to form OPEC. Prices shot up for like a decade or so before they crashed. Then in the early 2000s, we had another commodities boom when China entered the World Trade Organization and its economy began to expand rapidly, which led to a rising demand for oil, gas, minerals, etc. So this is another commodity super cycle that we are experiencing. And of course, you know, it presents opportunities for resource-rich countries, oil and gas producers, but also mineral-rich countries. And I'll come to that in a bit. So in terms of immediate opportunities, obviously it's the revenue windfalls, right? So oil prices are now at $110 per barrel. Two or three months ago, it was about $140 per mm. barrel, which is quite unprecedented. So suddenly you have countries from Algeria to Angola to Nigeria to Gabon, Equatorial Guinea and others that had severe fiscal pressures because oil prices were low, because they were badly hit by the pandemic, economically, etc., suddenly having these windfall revenues, which could help alleviate some of their balance of trade and balance of payments uh, pressures. But what is also interesting is that because of, again, politics and policymaking in the case of a country like Nigeria, which is meant to be Africa's largest oil producer, it has actually not been benefiting from these high, high oil prices. So this is almost like a break from what we had in the past. And why, why is that? Well, because 
its oil production infrastructure is actually quite old and aged and dated and has not been able to attract investments for the past two decades or so. But also this insurgency in the oil producing region, the Niger Delta, that has kind of worsened over the past couple of years. And then there's a rampant issue of oil theft, which takes up more than 10% of daily production, almost 150,000 barrels a day, right? So you have all these things along with a dependence on fuel subsidies because Nigeria doesn't actually produce refined oil or refined fuels for its domestic usage, right? So all these domestic political dynamics. Nevertheless, across the board, windfall revenues are a boon to oil-rich countries. And that's in the immediate term. So maybe in the kind of medium to longer term, this is where the gas producers come into play, that the war in Ukraine is suddenly causing European governments in particular to soften their strong stance that they started to develop like the past in the past two to five years against financing gas projects in Africa. Right. Because now a lot of these governments realize, oh, you know, we need to move away from Russian supplies. Where can we get alternative gas supplies? So we saw the German chancellor visit Senegal in May to discuss sourcing gas. Countries like South Africa, Botswana, which are not necessarily gas producers, are now meant to be exporting coal to Europe. Right. So. All this to say that uh, despite the discourse on climate change and actually the imperative for the whole world to move to a low carbon future, that, you know, suddenly European leaders are focused on their energy security and they're considering alternative sources for gas, including countries you mentioned, Mauritania, even Nigeria, which is a major gas producer as well. (laughs) Algeria as well, which already provides gas to Europe. So the European countries has hard position because of climate change, because of the green energy agenda? Yes, it's because of the green energy agenda. In fact, at the UN Climate Summit last year in Glasgow, an announcement was made to stop financing abroad all fossil fuel projects, oil and coal in particular. They didn't quite mention gas, but In practice, they were very much against financing gas projects abroad. But now we are seeing an interesting fluidity, I would say, maybe not a shift, a fluidity in that position. So it means that... A pragmatism in the position. (laughs) Pragmatism. Pragmatism and fluidity in that position. Here's the thing. The way I see it, I'm not sure these are even great opportunities for African countries. Because as I mentioned to you, that was why I started with providing a kind of historical context. We've seen this before. Okay. Some shock happens, you know, whether it's domestic, whether it's internal, whether it's external, whether it's China joining the WTO or the creation of OPEC, whatever it is, or a war somewhere leads to rising commodity prices. Countries get a windfall. They promise to do all these things that they never do, by the way. But for me, it just signifies that there's a risk that we're going to replicate the same models of the past that have not worked. We're going to end up replicating the same extractive model where countries are just extracting a non-renewable resource, selling it on the global market for whatever price, and using the revenue. Sometimes they use it well. In many cases, they don't use the revenues well until the price collapses and then we're back to square zero. 
right? So for me, this is a huge risk. And it means that unless we have that framework of, look, economic diversification is absolutely paramount. And, you know, the case of Saudi Arabia here is so interesting because Saudi Arabia, whenever oil prices collapse, you hear Saudi elites talk endlessly about economic diversification. They dust up all the plans that they have, (laughs) whether it's building the new capital city, Noom, or now the new golf tournament they've started and all these initiatives, they dust them up and they get a bit serious until oil prices rise. And then, you know, there's so much money that you know no one is thinking seriously again about economic diversification. But in the case of African countries, I think there's a huge risk now of just continuing with this model of extracting resources, devastating the environment and not thinking proactively about diversifying the economy because we are going to move to a low-carbon future in the next few decades. So if I understand you correctly, the opportunities really for African countries in terms of windfall, it's actually limited. It is limited. But they have great opportunity for diversification, opportunity to reconsider the way they've been going. Absolutely, yes. There's an opportunity to reconsider the way they have been going just in the past two years or so. The countries that were struggling to get financing for their gas projects, financing from European entities, public entities. And the multilaterals. Multilaterals. Now there's a bit of a, I mean, that position hasn't even really changed technically, but there's a bit more flexibility. So meaning that once the dynamics of European energy security change, then we're going to see a hardening of positions against natural gas. So this is the time right now to invest in the infrastructure, in value addition, in economic diversification. And and let me elaborate a bit on what I mean by that. Diversification, even within an industry and a sector vertically, you're a gas producer or you're an oil producer, invest in domestic refining. Leverage the AFCFTA because the demand is there in West Africa, in East Africa, you know, these, they're all countries that are struggling right now because they are reliant on fuel imports from abroad and the prices of those imports have really gone up. Invest in domestic refining, invest in domestic petrochemicals, right? Even just within that one industry. But this model of you're just going to extract the resource and sell it abroad, really risky. You said earlier you come back to the mineral rich countries. Can you briefly talk a little bit how that may be or may not be different from the oil-producing countries? There are some similarities, but there are a lot of differences, right? I think what makes oil-producing countries very, very interesting is just the scale of the resources that they get or the scale of the revenues that they get from selling oil. It's really not the same as selling copper, for example. There are scholars who have done a lot of work on looking at those differences. So the revenues, if you just even compare, they're really very, very different in terms of the volumes. I think the other thing I'll mention is that, again, the current moment we find ourselves in, with the fact that we have this imperative to transition to a low-carbon future, to address the challenge of climate change, a lot of the elements that make up our global economy, whether power generation, or transportation and mobility, et cetera, are very much reliant on burning oil, burning coal, burning hydrocarbons, right? So the shift to cleaner forms of energy means that 
we're going to use new technologies that probably rely less on those fossil fuels, but rely in some ways on components that have different types of mineral resources as their input. So you look at cobalt and it's using batteries, copper as well, it's using batteries, lithium, nickel and others, and they're using solar panels, wind turbines, batteries that I mentioned earlier. And you realize that this transition to a low carbon future, while it's going to mean that eventually the demand for oil in particular and gas much later on will decline at some point over the next couple of decades, for mineral resources, it might actually be the opposite. The surge in demand for cobalt, which is a resource that is found in the DRC, or DRC is a major cobalt producer globally. A couple of mineral-rich countries in Africa are going to see a new scramble, a new resource boom that they will need to manage. For them, the opportunity upside is pretty huge if they seize the moment. If they seize the moment, but again, if they use or adopt a model that is different from this extractive model that we are so used to, you just dig the resource out of the ground and sell the raw, as opposed to doing some kind of value addition, some kind of refining, some kind of beneficiation. I think that is what these countries need to do differently. But then then we go back to the politics. And and the vision. Yes. (laughs) So in this case, this, of course, feeds right into great power competition and everything else that has been front and center of a lot of the debates we have in terms of development. The question I have for you moving forward is, you know, on this program, we always mind the gap. There's the perception of the problem, then there's the reality of the problem. And the solution typically lies in that intersection when you bring your perception closer to the reality and often that. If you were to talk to policymakers here in Nigeria and DRC elsewhere, where is that gap that we need to mind to reduce that differential between perception and reality? And if you had a magic wand, what would you do to make things right? Oh, wow. Tough. (laughs) I think, let me just say that if I had a very simple solution, I would use it to make a ton of money. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. There's the financial model that we all want. (laughs) No, but on a serious note, I don't know if there's a simple answer to that. But maybe the one that is very obvious to me is that any country that is negotiating any agreement or any deal with any company, be it domestic, a national company, be it a multinational, whatever it is, they have to put value addition front and center. They have to do things differently. It's not about digging the resource and selling it. It's about how do you help us achieve this objective of economic diversification as a company? How do you help us advance the objective of value addition? Do some basic refining in the country. Do some basic processing of that commodity in the country. Even that alone, the spillover impacts are going to be tremendous in terms of jobs creation, in terms of linkages to other industries in that country. You're going to see immediate difference in a short period of time. The book is Economic Diversification in Nigeria, The Politics of Building a Post-Oil Economy. Zainab Usman, it's been a pleasure having you here. We appreciate your insight. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thank you for listening. 
We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long.